This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Carlos Garrido Castellano, the author of the book called Beyond Representation in Contemporary Caribbean Art from Rutgers University Press. He insists on a new way of thinking about experiencing and writing about art. Caribbean art and artists claim agency in and through the spaces they created. It is a thoroughly creative work in itself and it reveals region of fascinating, often deeply political interventions in the public sphere. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Carlos. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, so I want to start with um, talking maybe a little bit about the title, the Beyond Representation in Contemporary Art, as a way to get into the book. What lies beyond representation? <laughs> That's a nice question, actually. Uh, well, I have to begin with by saying that uh, much of the criticism on contemporary Caribbean art focuses on uh, the kind of discourses that Caribbean creators produce in order to challenge, to contest uh, external representation, let's say colonial representation coming from Europe, uh, let's say, and the, and the West. In that sense, I found out that uh, there is a lot uh, of uh, there is a huge interest by side of uh, Caribbean creators in challenging those perspectives and let's say stereotypes on the Caribbean. But at the same time, I think we can also see something new, something let's say uh, autonomous emerging out of those uh, visual discourses and visual productions. So in this book, I try to understand how uh, art making in the Caribbean can also be place making, can also be creating a different kind of space, a different kind of public space, civic space, to exchange, to interact within the region and beyond. Uh, so in that sense, I tried, in this book, I tried to see how challenging foreign stereotypes is important, of course, uh, and challenging the picturesque a stereotypical image of the Caribbean produced from abroad, the region is very important. But at the same time, there are other concerns emerging uh, in different Caribbean contexts, and that's what I tried to analyze in this book. Yes, I really think that your book proposes a whole new way to think and to talk about art, and I, I found it very exciting. Um, so the question of curation comes up very early, and it seems to me that you are, in addition to a writer, you're also a curator. 
Uh, and I read the book as an effort to kind of curate for readers a certain kind of argument about Caribbean art. And I was curious about how you went about your own curation of the art that you, the artworks that you include in the book. How did you choose those works? It seems like there is such a range of things to choose from. Well, uh, that's a nice question as well. <laughs> the thing is that uh, I have to begin with, I, I have to begin by saying that I'm kind of a amateur curating, curator, uh, in the sense that uh, I spent four or five years producing exhibitions, but that's not my main, my main area. Uh, at the same time, however, I found very interesting uh, the whole process of displaying, but also thinking about that display. Uh, particularly in the case of the Dominican Republic, which is the case I, I work with, uh, and the context I work in, uh, more specifically with more detail in, in terms of curating, uh, the entire experience was amazing and was kind, of, was very enriching at the same time because I realized that one thing is uh, studying visual production, studying artworks, we can say, uh, as if they were like individual, isolated. Productions and a very different thing is to see how those discourses, production, cultural productions, uh, operate and mobilize, let's say, different kind of affects and effects. And that's something that became quite clear to me uh, in practice while creating some exhibitions. That's something that somehow transformed my way of seeing things and writing about those things. Uh, in, in, in the case, I can't remember now, the, the exhibition I did with uh, Belki Ramirez, it was a nice process. And that exhibition consisted of hours and hours and hours of dialogues uh, in person, but also via, uh, via Skype. And I think, I remember that my impression of her work changing uh, a lot by exchanging with her, but also being there, being in the Centro Cultural de España in Santo Domingo, and uh, thinking about the space, thinking about the, the viewers of that exhibition, having expectations and, let's say, previous ideas about how the exhibition was uh, was going to work, uh, was very important and very interesting in the sense of changing and challenging my own ideas about her work. And, well, I can say that in this case, we had a very good time working together. Uh, she was a central part of my of the entire process. She passed away one month ago or so. Uh, and in this sense, it was a very, let's say, powerful figure for me. Uh, and I, I guess that Caribbean art has always been uh, shaped by, by the ways in which Caribbean discourses and Caribbean voices have been created in and out, let's say, different uh, formations, both inside the region and outside the region. If we look at the last 20, 30 years, uh, let's say, Caribbean art history, whatever that means, we will realize that uh, the weight of exhibition, mega exhibitions produced outside, from outside the region is huge still now. And that's, of course, very much problematic because it silences many other processes taking place within the region. Uh, so I guess that creating is at the center of uh, art making, art discussing, art uh, thinking, let's say, uh, not just in the Caribbean, but everywhere. And in the case of the Caribbean, it shapes in a very, let's say, complex and problematic way uh, how artworks and, let's say, artists uh, have been uh, mobilized and discussed and, 
have joined certain conversations. Yeah, I think that you um, you mentioned this this idea uh, of the post-colonial exhibitionary context, and I think that that's a little bit what you're talking about, right? And and the ways that you're trying to work against that in the book. Yeah, totally. Uh, I, I found out that uh, in many ways, some curatorial forms, the idea, for example, of the PNL as the space where cosmopolitan artists and cosmopolitan art critics meet each other and interact with each other, acts as a kind of, uh, pretends to be, let's say, is, or is presented as a kind of neutral space, a random choice that somehow contamines and, uh, let's say, silences all the possible forms. Uh, and all the possible interactions. And, uh, for example, while doing research in Puerto Rico and Trinidad and many other contexts, I realized that uh, the exhibitionary complex, that idea of exhibitions being at the, at the heart of our making, our discussing, our displaying, is simply not true. It's simply a kind of a formation that somehow imposes itself onto other uh, different uh, manifestations. Many of the artists who join those forms, those exhibitions, uh, dedicate a lot of time to interact uh, and to produce artist-managed projects and artist-managed space, spaces. So in this sense, I think those forms, those productions, uh, have received much less attention than uh, exhibitions and biennials and so on. So I try to start from the point of considering biennials and exhibitions as a, let's say, ideologically uh, not neutral, uh, ideologically charged form of display and creativity. And I also try to compare them to other possible, other potential, other alternative forms of exchange, of negotiation, of discussion. Uh, and that, of course, came from practice, came from, came from, let's say, listening for hours and hours and hours to many artists complaining about the fact that exhibitions just represent small parts of their own uh, activity, uh, of their own, let's say, everyday life. So instead of criticizing and, let's say, rejecting those kind of forms, those kind of creative forms, uh, curatorial forms, I try to put them side by side of alternatives, uh, other alternative possibilities. Yeah, and what what comes out of that are these descriptions of these wonderful and sometimes um, really ironic and funny funny projects, right? I loved <laughs> I loved uh, Blown Away, for example. Uh-huh. Um, I thought maybe um, you could describe that for our listeners, and then and then we can talk about it a little bit. Well, the case of Blown Away was a personal frustration for me. Because I was so yeah, I was so angry with that project uh, after having spent many years, many many years doing research. So after that, you, you come across this exhibition where an Italian guy, an European guy, says that the Caribbean doesn't exist and the Caribbean is the perfect empty space where he can project his own fantasies and ideas on how absurd the art world is. Uh, so that was so problematic for me in so many senses that. I needed to write something about that, but I also needed to write something that could contribute. So I, I thought that criticizing him wasn't enough, Criti- saying that this project was, let's say, 
restaging and reimposing colonial stereotype wasn't enough. That was obvious for me in a kind of sense. Uh, so I wanted to do something else. I wanted to go one step further. And I realized that, well, blown away, uh, somehow represents a stereotypical view that uh, many creators and many, let's say, players within the international artwork have, still have, on the Caribbean. So that's that was the first thing for me to realize that this is not unique. This is not uh, a unique case. Uh, and in some other cases, that kind of discourse is also present, although in a more subtle way. But it's, that doesn't mean that it's not less dangerous, let's say. Uh, and after that, I realized that the entire structure of Blown Away was about artists doing nothing. Artists joining parties and uh, international events and acting like stars. And of course, that's present in the art world. That's a very, let's say, typical, stereotypical uh, image and, let's say, narrow minded uh, view of the art world. But there is, some, there is much more. And uh, so I could have followed this view, but, uh, this line, but at the same time, I thought, okay, hold on. What does it mean to do nothing? Was what can we do while doing nothing? And yes, I then realized that doing nothing can also be a very powerful form of not uh, joining, of uh, let's say, not uh, supporting a particular cause, a particular uh, view. And I found out that doing nothing has also to do with the way in which uh, during colonial times uh, runaway slaves were categorized, uh, were negatively categorized by the uh, plantation owners. So those people are running away and doing nothing, quote unquote, doing nothing. And then I realized that doing nothing can also be a very powerful activist act, can be a very powerful way of challenging, of changing how things should be done, of challenging our own imagination. So instead of just criticizing blown away, I tried to put it side by side, other, let's say, under my view, more successful ways of doing nothing and more, let's say, space-aware and context-aware ways of doing nothing. Uh, and that's how I tried to confront uh, Blown Away, not just as, as a particularly, let's say, stupid case uh, of approaching the Caribbean, but mostly as a symptom of how many uh, actors within the art world still look at uh, the region, sadly, let's say, but also about the agency that many Caribbean creators have in challenging and proposing alternative views and alternative understandings of the region, not just in, let's say, confronting those discourses, but in, uh, but also on, in uh, proposing and materializing those alternatives. Yeah, and just to be clear, for for our um, our listeners who don't know what Blown Away is, it actually was a bunch of artists getting together on the beach and drinking, as far as I can, or hanging out, right? Yeah, it's exactly so, about basically uh, inviting a dozen names, uh, a dozen very powerful names from the international art world, taking them to send kids for two weeks uh, to hang out and do nothing, and then coming back and producing a very intellectual This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. But, but I do, I did really appreciate the way you kind of, peel, you picked at it and, and peeled it away. And, and then you get to the idea of the, which really is contextual in the Caribbean, as you say, and it's about a history of enforced labor and responses to that. And so I think that it, re- it really does um, force us to think about these things in, in very different kinds of ways. Um, I, I'm wondering if you have a favorite piece that you described in the book, if you oh, found wow. that one probably. Mm-hmm. Did you find less problematic? Well, there are many, <laughs> there are many, and there are many also that are not in the book, but that should be at the same time. Well, I can't think about uh, Don Scott's uh, cultural project, uh, that huge installation in the National Gallery of Jamaica. That uh, I used to work in the National Gallery of Jamaica Library for two months. Uh, I used to go to the archives, check about check information about each project. And one thing I noticed was that although this installation was produced in the mid eighties, it is still it's a still a central part of the entire museum. It's, cent- it's let's say central place of the gallery, uh, a place where kids, but not only kids, uh, would go to revisit to think about. Uh, the entire display of the museum and so on, and it, my, I, I, I'm kind of highlighting this one because it was a very uh, personal experience for me to see how people could interact with this project, in which ways uh, good people approach or not approach particular artworks and projects. Uh, and I think I, I really, I really think that artworks have their own lives once they are produced, and that applies to many. To our works in museums, but also to our works in say, particular collections and private collections and so on. Another case is uh, Belkis Ramirez uh, Tira Piedras, this giant uh, sling. Uh, I remember being in the Museo de Arte Moderno in Santo Domingo, in the Dominican Republic, and seeing how the visitor approaches their work in a quite performative way, as if that person would throw a stone, would actually they pick a, pick a stone from the from the floor and throw it against the wall. So uh, the whole idea of visiting a museum, the whole idea of interacting with the artworks, with artworks in those spaces, uh, is still, I could say, uh, under theorized because it's not just about how what the artworks represent; it's also about the kind of reactions uh, they trigger. By side of the by, by side of the audience, and spending some time in any of those museums will reveal a lot, and will be quite uh, enriching in that sense. In the in opening up, let's say, new possibilities of uh, interweaving and uh, confronting uh, these productions. So I would say those two: the uh, cultural project by Don Scott and uh, Belkis uh, Tira Piedras. Yeah, the um, the one um, in the in the National Gallery is actually one that I wanted to ask you about a little bit more, um, because you really you describe that in a way that ends up um, ambivalent, right? It's an open ended discussion that you offer us, and in and you talk about the ways that art 
kind of challenges institutional power, but you also acknowledge the limits of that a little bit, right? Yeah, the first thing um, the first thing for me was uh, starting from the fact that museums are not graveyards where objects come and then stay like this forever. Uh, in the same in the same way that spectators and visitors and viewers are not dead, in the sense they can in the sense of having uh, many different approaches and many different possibilities. I think objects within museums are alive as well in that sense. So that was central to my understanding of uh, institutional space and institutional practices and creative practices within the institution, which is a different thing. Uh, but besides, let's say, applying theory on institutional critique and institutional policies and so on, I just tried to pay attention. I just tried to uh, stay there for as many times as possible and listen and uh, witnessing what was going on in those spaces. And I learned a lot that way. Uh, so in that sense, I think that that appreciation of our works as being alive has a lot to do with spending time in those spaces and seeing how different people would interact with different artworks. I can I can give you another example. For example, uh, in the again in the Dominican Republic, Jorge Pineda designed a very beautiful uh, corpse uh, by uh, made of chalk, uh, and that corpse was an homage to uh, Joseph Boyce. I remember that seeing that exhibition displayed in the National Gallery in the Museo de Arte Moderno in Santo Domingo, and I remember how afraid everyone was of breaking that body. The entire exhibition was about you being able to get there, break a piece of the body and write whatever you want with that, with that piece. But I remember how everyone was not willing to do that at first. And then suddenly someone did and everyone followed. So I think that's kind of intuitive and that's kind of that, that the entire process of interacting with institutional spaces and interacting with authors. Without work, without work, sorry, it's kind of intuitive. But at the same time, it tells us a lot about how people conceive of those spaces and how people approach or are, let's say, include, feel included or not included within those spaces. So and that, that's really interesting because not only do you talk about how artists remake spaces, you also talk about how artists claim new spaces for art and make, in, in particular in the, the examples with Trinidad and Alice Yar, the idea of undoing uh, the marginality of certain spaces and making them more central, right? So that really what you're, when you, when you talk about the reshaping of space, that's really, a, a, it's a wonderful example. Yeah, I love uh, the case. I mean, I, I'm really, I think the, the case of Trinidad is very, very interesting because artists there has been operating on a, let's say, artist manage a smaller scale visual organization for around 20 years already. And the way they have achieved to preserve many of those projects going on and being alive and so on is impressive. It's a nice example for any other part of the world. Uh, what I want to say about this is that uh, this kind of a space is becoming more and more and more important in times of uh, precariousness and, uh, let's say, uh, cultural crisis. Uh, so this is becoming a model for many other contexts that somehow realize that 
keeping the spectacular uh, tone uh, that was let's say associated to art making and art producing and art consuming was uh, somehow not sustainable any longer so i think in the case of trinidad what we have is a nice example of how things should be done in a sustainable way on a participative way on an let's say on a way that allows many voices of course coming from different positions it's not that those voices are still are all the same and let's say are equal but allow those voices to negotiate and to produce a different space a different meeting point where they can converge uh, that is somehow shaped by their own necessities by their own uh, needs and expectations uh, one of the experiences uh, in writing this book was uh, spending two months in Alice Yard in Port of Spain and uh, writing while listening how different rock bands and many other kind of bands, music bands were performing and testing uh, their uh, their music. So in this sense, that's the, let's say, the most remote image one can have of doing academic work. But in this case, what was true, something I wrote about that while listening to bands performing. And I think that was part of the entire project uh, that Alice Yard is. I think that was at the core, at the heart of this kind of initiative uh, that somehow give us, uh, let's say, gives up some of the specialization that we can associate with contemporary art, uh, in the case of conceiving contemporary arts, uh, as a product of someone trained to be an artist, trained to be a curator. So it has a lot to do with saying, okay, we have different backgrounds, we have different, we come from different places, but what about creating this in-between space where we can meet and we can, let's say, give something to each other and interact and so on. Uh, I think this is intrinsically linked to Caribbean creativity within the last, at least within the last 20, 30 years. I think this kind of space, such as Alicia, I'm mentioning here Alicia, but I can give you many other examples in many other contexts, has been crucial to redefine what Caribbean, how art is produced and what art does in the Caribbean within the last 20 or 30 years. And I think those kind of spaces and those kind of projects are uh, will have more and more and more protagonism uh, within the near future because this is the, this is the most for me, I see them as the most organic and productive way of approaching the very essential, basic needs that cultural creators uh, can experience. Yeah, and, and so and again, you push it in, you push that very idea in a slightly different direction when you talk about a different kind of space, which um, I found really fascinating. The work that people are doing on di diaspora and in particular borders, the Dominican artist that you describe who um, who invited a Haitian man to share a hotel room with him for five days, right? <laughs> I can't stop thinking about the one where the blind um, Dominican man carries a disabled Haitian woman through the streets and together they make their way through the public space. Like the, the ways that um, 
those are very specific to the Caribbean, but they also kind of expand out into saying all kinds of things that you seem to be suggesting about art and the ways that we should think and talk and, and experience art. Yeah, in this case, uh, in, the, in the case of David Perez, uh, there are many uh, remarkable things about this project. The first one is that uh, he produced this project in Santiago de los Caballeros, in the Dominican Republic, somehow challenging the idea that still prevails in many in many contexts that uh, painting and sculpture are higher, let's say, forms of visual creativity than performance. So. To be bold enough to uh, present such a conceptual, such a rich uh, work as Structura Completa uh, was, and to present this in the middle of the space, in the middle of the public space in Santiago, in, in the Dominican Republic, is uh, already a lot, means already a lot. Uh, I, I remember discussing this with uh, colleagues. The Republic with Sajuri Guzman, who is a person who has been supporting uh, performance artists in her country for decades, and saying that uh, Estructura Completa and this, not just Estructura Completa, but uh, the performances produced around, let's say, the 2009, 2010, around this moment, mark a deep uh, shift in the perception that many people had on performance and performative practices. And it's very interesting that this same piece was chosen to represent the Dominican Republic in the Venice Biennale. Uh, so the entire artwork was restaged in Venice and was restaged as a way of uh, showing uh, Dominicanness, uh, portraying a national, uh, two national identities in this sense, which of course brings different questions into the fore. But uh, what interests me here is that in the case of David, there has been a very powerful, let's say, years-long interest in researching how Haitian and Dominican bodies uh, interact uh, within La Española. So it's not about making a statement about Haiti or the Dominican Republic. It's about following bodies. It's about feeling bodies. It's about feeling with those bodies. And I think this is a very powerful, a very productive way of... Uh, using art to delve into the main debates, the main issues that are at stake in La Española right now. Uh, so uh, one of the things I really like from that is how it went, in this case, I think it perfectly applies, beyond the representation of, let's say, Haitianness or Dominicanness, whatever that is, just to explore and expand the possibilities of uh, exchanging physically exchanging, materially exchanging, and also, let's say, conceptually exchanging about uh, art, uh, movement, uh, support, uh, resilience, and many other things. Uh, so I think it was a very moving piece, and uh, if you talk to anyone uh, involved in the performance art medium in, in the Republic, they will remember that uh, that performance for the effects it triggered. So it's and I'm very much interested in those afterlives of those projects in, in the sense that they weren't just, in, they were produced to last for a very short period of time, but at the same time, the uh, aftermath, the inheritance of those actions is still alive in many cases. 
and is is still objects of discussion and controversy and so on. So they initiate or let's say continue the conversation that goes on and on and on and on and think that reveals the power that art, contemporary creativity can have in expanding uh, visual production beyond the let's say the limits of the museum or the sanitized white cube of or any other art space or institutional space. Yeah, and I, I mean, I had that response. I can't stop thinking about it and telling people about it. Um, but just as a way of closing up, it, it really strikes me that one of the very fascinating paradoxes of this book is that it urges people to go beyond the book, right? So you close with this notion of experience as at the core of creativity and the notion of immediacy. And I think that that is true for the artist, but also true for most of us who are not artists, but spectators. Um, it forces us to really theorize experience and, and think about how to experience this art um, in a much, much more full way. And it, it, I, don't know, I feel like the, the book kind of bounces people out into the world with a new way of experiencing it. I don't know if that's what you intended. Well, uh, that was part of the, of the idea. Uh when designing and thinking about the book, uh, I think, uh, to be fair with artists, we should explore the many possibilities they are opening for anyone in terms of engaging uh, the public space, and the, engaging ourselves in a, much, in a more, let's say, complex and demanding way. Uh, in this sense, for me, it was essential to see how many Caribbean artists, many Caribbean visual artists were trying to redefine the entire idea of producing art, the redefine the entire idea of consuming or, uh, with, uh, let's say, uh, attending uh, art spaces, attending art exhibitions, attending art events, and somehow looking for a definition that, in many cases, doesn't exist uh, yet. So there is this speculative tone in those productions, but at the same time, uh, we can also find a very tangible, a very material uh, interest behind those projects that somehow appeals to everyone, has to do not just with art, but also with what we do, what we usually do with the kind of exchanges we usually have with the hours we dedicate to work, to be with others, so on. So that was very powerful for me, and I think there is a lot to learn uh, from uh, those artists in that sense. I agree, and I just I, I thank you for for um, for all of that. I think that you've 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 put something into the world that will really expand and reverberate and resonate in so many different ways. Um, thank thank you. you so much for talking with me about it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. I have interviews lined up with Jorge Giovanetti and Alexander Rockland, so stay tuned. <laughs>